Thank you. That concludes general questions. The next item of business is First Minister's questions, and at question number one, I call Douglas Ross. Uh, thank you very much, Presiding Officer. The Scottish Conservatives have repeatedly called for John Swinney to come to this Parliament and face scrutiny on the crucial role that he has played in the shambolic ferry contracts. Every time we've requested... I mean, SNP backbenchers don't seem to like this, but the truth is... Imagine. Just, Sorry, just members. Imagine. Members, we're just beginning the session of First Minister's questions. I'd be very grateful if we can hear the question. Mr. Ross. Thank you, uh, Presiding Officer. Because every time we have asked for a statement, every SNP backbencher and John Swinney have voted against coming to this Parliament. But today he can't avoid the questions that Islanders and Scottish taxpayers need answers to. John Swinney signed off these ferry contracts that have so far cost quarter of a billion pounds and denied Islanders the ferries that they need. So will the Deputy First Minister finally tell the Scottish public, why did you sign off these deals? Deputy First Minister. First of all, President Officer, can I say that I'm answering questions today because the First Minister is still unwell with COVID. And for many, many obvious reasons, I wish her a very speedy recovery. Um, I don't really think Douglas Ross is in the strongest position to question my engagement with Parliament on key issues. Because I gave a statement earlier this week, I answered questions last week, and I handled a bill the week before. Unlike some Tory MSPs, you won't find me skiving off to the football for a few days when Parliament is sitting. Presiding officer, members, we will have quiet, please. Uh, as a minister, I carry collective responsibilities for the actions of the Scottish Government. The responsibility for agreeing contracts lies in this case with individual portfolios, which in this particular scenario is transport. My role was to provide the necessary budget for building the ferries. After the final decision was taken, officials briefed me about the contract being awarded and assured me on the basis of the contract, the budget I had approved in August of 2015 did not require to be changed. Douglas Ross. Well, um, I know the, the deputy. I, I, I know the, the, the deputy first minister doesn't do this very often, but he spoke about a statement he gave to Parliament. He spoke about a bill he's taking through Parliament, none of which have anything to do with ferries, which this Parliament has asked to hear from the Deputy First Minister about. And on every occasion, John Swinney has not just refused, he has voted against it. He has voted to stop himself giving a statement to Parliament. And of course, John Swinney's fingerprints are all over this deal. Emails show that the Deputy First Minister confirmed there were no banana skins. He was on calls with finance officials who said Mr Swinney, and I quote, now understands the background. His approval was essential. The contract was only clear to award after he signed it off, according to Scottish Government emails. John Swinney charged ahead despite ferry experts warning against the contracts. 
despite legal advice that the SNP originally tried to cover up but they couldn't redact properly, warning of the high risk of the contract being challenged and ruled ineffective. The SNP charged ahead despite the contract missing a key safeguard that is an industry standard. Despite the fact that jobs at Ferguson were already safe, the Yard had other options for work. Despite members, dis members, members, we simply are not going to be shouting from a sedentary position. Mr Ross, please continue. I mean, it just shows how they want to just push this under the carpet for it all to go away. That they don't want scrutiny over a quarter of a billion pounds. Quarter of a billion pounds that has been spent and not a single ferry for the islanders that they were promised. So I go back. It was despite there being no agreed design for the ferries and despite that the Ferguson bid was the most expensive of them all. So can the Deputy First Minister explain to people across Scotland why he approved these deals despite all the evidence suggesting otherwise? Deputy First Minister. I have made clear already in my answer, my first answer, that I carry collective responsibility for the actions of the government. So I accept that these decisions were taken by government, but they were taken individually by the Transport Minister. And if I can just uh, give Douglas Ross the benefit of the note that he is quoting from, uh, from a senior finance official uh, into the system, which says, just finished my call with the Deputy First Minister, he now understands the background and that Mr Mackay has cleared the proposal. Now that's it. That is the complete sentence that Douglas Ross is missing. The decision had been taken and I was being briefed that there was no change to the financial budget that I had already sanctioned. Why is that answer not good enough for Douglas Ross to understand? Because he's been given that answer on countless occasions. And as for his points about the government uh, not wishing to have scrutiny about this issue, this has been an issue which has been looked at by a parliamentary committee. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's been looked at by Audit Scotland. It's been looked at again by another parliamentary committee. It's been the subject of a range of questions here at question time. And what I would say to Douglas Ross is when he looks at all of the papers, what this uh, contract arrangement demonstrates is that this government was taking actions to deliver ferries for island communities that were required. And, and we were taking decisions to protect employment on the lower cloud. That is a record this government is determined to defend. Well, well, you have to be pretty determined to defend a record that hasn't built these ferries, that has left islanders without the ferries. Uh, and Honest John has missed the second sentence Mr. in the email. Ross, Mr Ross, we will desist from nicknames in sorry, this chamber and sorry. we will call people by their first name. Sorry, answer. John Swinney uh, read out a sentence of an email uh, but refused to read the second sentence. And I wonder why. Because the second sentence says, so the way is clear to award. That's the conclusion of the email that reveals the Deputy First Minister's involvement. It was escalated to the Deputy First Minister on the 9th of October 2015 at 17.15. So if, if SNP members don't want to hear this, the email was sent that the way to award was clear only after it went 
to John Swinney. So why did the SNP really sign off this deal? It wasn't to save jobs, because we know the jobs were safe. It wasn't the cheapest deal for taxpayers. It was actually the most expensive. It wasn't the most secure contract. It was the most risky. It wasn't backed by experts. They warned against it. They told the Deputy First Minister and others. But against overwhelming evidence, John Swinney signed off the deal anyway. It seems obvious to everyone what happened here. The SNP wanted the political praise for keeping the yard open ahead of an election, so they ignored all of the alarm bells. It looks an awful lot like the SNP made a dodgy deal, and now they're trying to cover it up. So can the Deputy First Minister... So can... Sorry, the... Can we please hear Mr Ross's question? Question, Mr Ross. I'm grateful. The Deputy First Minister is, is trying to listen, despite some of the uh, content behind him. So can he really tell the public that there was no political motive behind the award of this contract? Deputy First Minister. Uh, there was no political motive behind this contract. The objective of the government was to ensure that ferries that were required are built, and that is what we are concentrating on achieving. And we are also determined to ensure that the uh, employment in the Lower Clyde was supported with contracts coming from the CalMAC network. And for Mr Ross to say that somehow the yard could stay open without any contracts is just to deny physical reality about uh, the way in which a yard would be run. I would point out to, I would point out to Mr Ross that Audit Scotland went through the procurement process and indicated that the procurement process was entirely standard, resulting in uh, Ferguson's becoming the preferred bidder. And on that basis, the Transport Minister took the, con took the decision to award the contract, as the note says. He now understands the background and that Mr Mackay has cleared the proposal. And well, Mr Ross is trying to invent something else. He's trying to... So, what I've explained... What I've explained to Parliament, consistent Deputy with my First obligation... Minister, Deputy First Minister, um, we're having a continuation of quite a lot of heckling, and I'd be very grateful if members could resist the temptation and very much like to hear the Deputy First Minister. So, consistent with my obligations under the Ministerial Code to give truthful answers to Parliament, I make it clear to Parliament that the memo that Mr Ross has quoted from is simply recording the fact that I have been briefed about a decision that another minister has taken. And therefore, the way is clear to award the contract because I have been briefed, the budget is in place, and Mr Mackay's decision can stand. Now, Douglas Ross can go around smearing and inventing all the information he wants, but the people of Scotland will see through his grubby tactics today. What the people of Scotland can see is a quarter of a billion pounds of taxpayers' money spent on two ferries that have so far not sailed, that were promised to islanders who need these, that desperately need these for their connectivity, that were promised them by this government. And I think for the Deputy First Minister to respond in that way undermines what these communities need right now.
because it seems it seems this was the best deal for the SNP, not the best deal for Scotland. And ScotRail is going the same way for commuters as the ferry deal has gone for islanders. One in three train services has been cut just a month after the Deputy First Minister's SNP government took control of our railways. Earlier this week, presiding officer, in a rare move, business groups, including the Scottish Tourism Alliance, the Scottish Financial Enterprise, the Scottish Chamber of Commerce, the Scottish Retail Consortium and the Institute of Directors united to warn of the harsh impact their members are facing as a result of these ScotRail cuts. Delays, last-minute cancellations and reduced services are causing real problems for passengers right across the country. And next week, our national men's team are fa uh, playing their biggest match for over two decades. The Tartan Army will need to get to and from Hamden, to and from Hamden on ScotRail. <laughs> Deputy First Minister, will your government have got a grip of this situation by then? And if not, when can people expect the rail service that they need? Deputy First Minister. When we look at the specific questions that Douglas Ross has put to me this, this afternoon on the Ferguson's issue, I think it's abundantly clear why a statement by me to this Parliament was unnecessary, because he had nothing of substance to put to me whatsoever. Now, Presiding Officer, I've been around this chamber for a long, long time, and there's a, a, an assessment often been made that when a political leader changes the topic of their question in the run of First Minister's questions, it's an indication they are in trouble. And that's exactly where Douglas Ross is. This government, Mr Ross, Mr. Ross knows, Mr. Ross knows full well. Members, Mr. Ross members, knows full well. Do continue, Deputy First Minister. People are following these proceedings and they would like to hear them. Mr Ross knows full well that there are negotiations underway between the employers, ScotRail, and the trade unions to resolve the industrial dispute that is disrupting, that is limited services just now. And that dialogue is underway as it properly should be. He asks me, he asks me about the Ukraine match, and obviously we want to see more services in place to deal with the Ukraine match, and I'm uh, very confident that ScotRail will have in place additional services to ensure that the specific requirements of accessing Hamden will be addressed as part of that process, and there will be announcements made in due course. Now, I suspect, I suspect, presiding officer, Mr. Ross, I suspect the degree of agitation we're getting from Mr. Ross today is an indication of the depth of trouble that Mr. Ross is in just now. And the fact that I don't think there's anything I'm going to be able to say today that's going to satisfy no, Mr Ross. So. He's going to doubt what I say. He's going to question my integrity. Well, I'm giving honest answers to Parliament. That's more than can be said. That is more than can be said for the Prime Minister Boris Johnson that, that Douglas Ross is prepared to support. Question number two. Anna Sarwar. Across the country, thousands of people have been left out of pocket and struggling with real chaos this week. There are countless examples, but let me give 
the Deputy First Minister won. Uh, Leanne lives in Dumbarton. She works at a service station in Helensborough. She takes the train to and from work. There is now no service after 8pm and she finishes her shift at 10.30pm. She is unable to drive and there is no public transport available. How does the Deputy First Minister expect Leanne and countless others to get home? Deputy First Minister. I, I sympathise entirely with the position that Leanne finds herself in. And that is why the, uh, the discussions that are going on just now uh, or will be taking place this afternoon between the rail trade unions and with ScotRail are so important to resolve this issue. We have got to operate a safe railway and we can only do that with fully and properly trained drivers. And the network currently relies upon rest day working uh, by, by ScotRail uh, trained drivers. That is a process we are trying to work out of the, to, to eliminate, but obviously the training of drivers for properly understandable reasons was interrupted by COVID. And obviously we are trying to make as much progress on boosting the driver numbers, of course there are more drivers available now than there have been in the past, to try to resolve that. But we have to resolve the dispute, which is what the discussions are all about. Uh, I encourage ScotRail and uh, the trade unions to reach a conclusion as part of that process so that individuals like Leanne can be able to have access to the type of rail service they should have access to. Anna Sarwar. The Deputy First Minister didn't ask, answer the question. Uh, unlike the Deputy First Minister, Leanne doesn't have a ministerial car to get her home. In the middle of a cost, you can hum and haw all you like. This is real lived experience for your constituents to care about your constituents. In the middle of a cost of living crisis, she has to spend £20 on a taxi. That means, that means she has to work two hours just to pay to get home. That's the reality for thousands of people across the country. Let's look at the facts. At the start of 2020, there were 2,400 services a day. In February, this Scottish Government made a permanent cut of 250 services a day. And this latest chaos sees that number increase to almost 1,000 services cut a day. And the message from ScotRail and the Scottish Government is simply to make your own arrangements. Normally, when there's a significant disruption on rail services, a replacement bus service is provided. So can the Deputy First Minister tell us, of the 1,000 services cut a day, how many have a replacement bus service? Deputy First Minister. Uh, Mr Sarwar asked me some points about the capacity of our rail services, and I want to address those points. If we look back at um, the situation just in 2015, there were 1,086 drivers on the ScotRail network. That uh, December was 1,168, so there has been growth in the number of drivers. Um, ScotRail would have trained a further 130 drivers um, had the process not been paused during the pandemic for, I think we all accept, understandable reasons. Uh, there is now a, a, a pool of almost 900 pending driver applications, which gives us um, a, a supply of candidates coming into driver training that will allow us to expand the availability of driving personnel. And indeed, the ScotRail board gave authority for the recruitment of a further 135 drivers to move forward to the next stage. So I, I, I put those points on the record to address the, the capacity of the rail services and to show the investment that has been made in ensuring that we have adequate numbers of drivers in the future. We are in a period of difficulty just now because drivers 
are exercising their voluntary right not to undertake rest day working. We are trying to resolve those issues by the negotiation that is taking place, and we have put in place, through ScotRail, an amended timetable which gives more certainty about the availability of services rather than last-minute cancellations. And that was the feedback that we got from Transport Focus as being the most important issue that should be addressed uh, for the travelling public so they had certainty about the transport that was available. Uh, the Deputy First Minister spoke, but he didn't actually answer the question. I, I, I WhatsApped the ScotRail business account this morning to ask about how many replacement bus services they had. And the answer, hi there, no, there isn't any. There isn't any replacement services across the country. In the middle of a cost of living and climate crisis, this SNP Green Government are leaving people stranded with no public transport and asking them to use gas-guzzling vehicles instead. What this failure means in practice is tens of thousands of people struggling to get to and from work, more people out of pocket and made poorer, millions lost for local businesses and the industries that suffered so much during COVID taking another hit. While this Deputy First Minister and his colleagues have 28 chauffeur-driven cars costing over £1 million to get them to and from their work, this SNP Green Government is cutting 1,000 rail services a day, offering no replacement bus services and forcing people to work hours just to pay for a taxi home. Shouldn't he and every other minister hand back the keys to the ministerial chauffeur cars until they get this sorted and get Scotland moving again? First Minister. What, what this government is doing is providing practical help to people with the cost of living. So, for example... Uh, the Scottish the Government, so help your constituents. for example, the Scottish Government has doubled the child payment in Scotland uh, from, uh, to £20 per week. It will go up to £25 per week and none of that support is available in any other part of the United Kingdom, including in Labour-run Wales. In addition to that, the Scottish Government has assisted individuals with council tax support We've assisted individuals with direct support through carers' allowance, for example, and other measures. Now, while we, are, while we are doing all of that to support the cost of living crisis that's been faced by members of the public, what is the Labour Party doing? The Labour Party is getting into bed with the Tory party in council administrations around the country. So, when... When Anna, Sarwar, when Anna Sarwar told the country on the 5th of May, don't reward the toxic, out-of-touch, corrupt Tory party with your vote, what is the Labour Party now doing? The Labour Party is rewarding the toxic, out-of-touch, corrupt Tory party jobs. with jobs at West Lothian Council and the Edinburgh City Council. The Labour Party and the Tory party working together Vote Labour, get Tory. Thank you. Thank you. We will now... Members, we will now move to general and consti... Members, members, until we have silence, I will not proceed with the next question.
We will now proceed to general and constituency supplementaries, and I call Graham Day. Uh, thank you, President Officer. The Deputy First Minister will be aware that this year marks the 40th anniversary of the Falklands War, a conflict which claimed the lives of members of the Scots Guards and four or five commando based in my constituency. I wonder if he shares my disappointment that the UK Government's Falkland Veterans Concessionary Flight Scheme remains suspended, denying holders of the South Atlantic Medal and next of kin their only realistic chance of visiting the islands at this poignant time. Now, I understand that the scheme was paused because of the pandemic and that there have been indications it might resume at some point later this year. But would the Deputy First Minister join me in calling on the UK Government to restart it as a matter of urgency so that those for whom this anniversary means so much can, if they wish, visit the Falklands and pay their respects to fallen comrades? Deputy First Minister. Officer, it's understandable that non-essential travel to the Falklands was suspended in 2020 due to the COVID-19 restrictions, uh, but I very much agree with Mr Day, who of course um, pursued the, many of these issues as the Veterans Minister for some time, um, that it's extremely important that the flights resume at the earliest possible and practicable time, especially in this 40th anniversary year, which I appreciate also is the subject of a Member's debate in Parliament um, uh, on this topic. The Cabinet Secretary for Justice and Veterans has written to the Secretary of State for Defence to seek clarity on the projected timeline for resumption of the flights and to impress on the Secretary of State the importance of continuing to provide this critical support to veterans of the 1982 conflict. Tess White. Thank you, Presiding Officer. A week before the census deadline, National Records of Scotland announced only 84.8% of households had filled in the census. In Dundee, almost a fifth of households hadn't completed it. In Glasgow, it was close to a quarter. Last year, the return rate in England and Wales was 97%. With just five days to go, does the Deputy First Minister agree the census has been a disaster from start to finish, and that it was a mistake to separate the Scottish census from the wider UK census? Deputy First Minister. No, no, I don't agree with that point. Uh, there is obviously a lot of very hard work going on to ensure that the census is completed. Uh, the final uh, a, a returns will be disclosed by National Records of Scotland in due course. There is, of course, some way in the analysis that's got to be undertaken by National Records of Scotland. And uh, arising from that, uh, obviously, Parliament will be updated by Angus Robertson on the progress of the census and the strength of the information that is available for us to use in uh, future developments of public policy in Scotland. Paul O'Kane. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Uh, Julie Lamberth, Chair of the Royal College of Nursing, said on Monday that fair pay is needed to stem an exodus of staff and retain younger nurses in our NHS. She also made clear that the two priorities for dedicated nursing staff right now are pay and safe staffing. Nursing and midwifery vacancies climbed by a shocking 170 per cent between 2020 and 2021, and I have heard first-hand from nurses who have made it clear that the current normalisation of staffing gaps is taking its toll on their mental and physical health. These are some of the most dedicated and hard-working staff in our NHS, leaving the profession they love broken. So when is the Government going to get a grip and engage with the RCN on safe staffing and fair pay and meaningful workforce planning that has been so desperately lacking? Deputy First Minister. 
the, the, these are serious issues that Mr O'Kane raises, and the, 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 the negotiations are underway on both of these questions, on pay and safe staffing, so the Government is engaged in that process as we speak. Um, we are working to ensure, within the significant constraints in which we are operating, that uh, we can address the issues that are of concern to members of the Royal College of Nursing. I would point out to Mr O'Kane, of course, that nursing and staffing levels in the National Health Service are higher than they were when we came to office and are at record levels and will continue to support nursing staff in the excellent and outstanding work that they do, upon which all of us depend. Christine Graham. Thank you very much, Presiding Officer. Deputy First Minister, a vulnerable constituent, a young man with Asperger's in my constituency, rents a small cottage on a farm in Peebles. His predicted electricity bills were £35 per month, but he's actually been billed £1,500 a month. Technicians appear and advise he's probably receiving bills from the farm, so he's now sitting with a so-called debt of nearly £4,000. Despite efforts of my office to get Aon to respond and even get in touch with the Chief Executive, we've had radio silence. Does the First Minister agree with all the bad publicity surrounding profits that Eon has and recommendations that customers should get in touch if they have financial difficulties due to their costs? This does not inspire confidence. Deputy First Minister. Well, it's, uh, on the basis of the information that Christine Graham has put to me, uh, that is a very serious situation. Uh, I, I know Christine Graham well. She is a, an assiduous constituency member of Parliament, and I'm absolutely certain that she will pursue E.ON with uh, tremendous energy to get answers and engagement, and I would encourage E.ON to engage. And if there is anything that government officials can do to assist, I would be happy to arrange for that to be provided. Uh, I think the case that Christine Graham raises is an illustration of the severity of the situation that some individuals will be facing in our society. They need the support of their members of parliament in the, 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 these circumstances, but the government also funds Advice Direct Scotland to provide free advice, support and assistance to households. And I would encourage anybody who needs that assistance to secure that assistance. And obviously, the, uh, you know, the scale of energy bills is a significant problem for individuals uh, in the, uh, the period that lies ahead. Sandesh Gohani. Thank you. One in 25 Scots is severely obese, but the backlog of wait and waiting times pre-pandemic has led to Scots in desperation flying overseas in increasing numbers for bariatric surgery. With one medical tourism organiser flying around 60 people per month from Scotland to Turkey. However, we're seeing an alarming number of patients returning from overseas surgery with no effective aftercare plan, as I was told by someone who recently returned from Turkey, or complications such as leaking of stomach contents or having a hernia. Will the Deputy First Minister join me in asking patients not to seek weight loss surgery overseas, but instead wait to be treated in the UK, where we have the best bariatric surgeons in the world, including the essential follow-up that's, that's vital for their safety? Deputy First Minister. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to associate myself with the call that's been made by Dr Gohani. I saw some media reports on this subject this morning that highlighted the point that he makes that whilst um, travelling uh, overseas may secure initial treatment uh, at a faster pace, the complications and implications of that are then carried by the National Health Service and that can be a significant burden for the health service and for individuals as a consequence. So I wholeheartedly endorse the point that's been made by uh, Dr Gohani and encourage individuals to follow the advice that he's given to Parliament today. Colin Smith. 
Thank you, President Officer. Today, my constituent, Marion Reid, along with other survivors of Fernethy House Residential School, have come to Parliament to highlight their plight. So far, more than 200 brave women have come forward, and I suspect that is the tip of the iceberg, and shared a traumatic, awful experience of physical, mental and sexual abuse at the hands of staff at Fernethy in the 1960s, where the young, vulnerable children were sent, supposedly, to help them recover from illness. Those women understandably feel that no one is listening to them. The Deputy First Minister has said he will meet with them. Can I ask him to ensure this meeting takes place urgently, but more importantly, that he and the government will listen and ensure that no stone is left unturned to get answers for those women and ensure the perpetrators are brought to justice? Deputy First Minister. There, there are a couple of different issues in there. On Mr Smith's last point about every effort being made to ensure perpetrators of abuse are brought to justice, that is properly a matter for Police Scotland and the Crown, and obviously I uh, endorse the points that Mr Smith has made about the importance of an approach being taken to bring any perpetrator of abuse to justice, but he will understand that is an independent process, uh, a process independent of government. On the substance of the issues around Fornethi, this is a very sensitive issue, and I have agreed to meet with the, uh, the, the, uh, a group of survivors, I think in response to a parliamentary question from Monica Lennon, and I will do, so that, I will do that as soon as it is possible to do so. Uh, I applaud the courage of individuals that have come forward, and I know their concern is that the redress arrangements that Parliament has put in place do not automatically include uh, uh, individuals who were um, in Fornethi for a short period of time, whereas our redress scheme is essentially a, uh, focused on long-term care placements that individuals um, uh, will have been placed on and, and abused uh, in that circumstance. What I would say to Mr Smith and his constituent is that there is obviously scope for individuals to apply to Redress Scotland for uh, a redress payment, um, given and each individual circumstance will be individually addressed and assessed. It is not a case that there is, um, a, 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 in a sense, a, a prohibition on applications from uh, Fornethi survivors. It is that each individual case will be assessed on its merits. But I will happily see uh, the group, and I will do that as soon as I possibly can do. Question number three, Ariane Burgess. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the Deputy First Minister how the Scottish Government is celebrating Scottish Bus Week. Deputy First Minister. <laughs> Free bus travel for under 22s. Free bus travel for under 22s. Free bus travel. Presiding Officer, I'm, I'm pleased to support the first ever Scottish Bus Week and to celebrate the many environmental, economic and social benefits that buses provide to our communities. This government has put buses at the heart of Scotland's just transition. Free, free bus travel for under 22. Fun, funding, funding over 500 low-carbon buses across Scotland, providing free bus travel for people under 22 and for older and disabled people. And, and investing over half a billion pounds in bus priority infrastructure. I urge all members to join us in supporting Scottish Bus Week and encourage more people to travel by bus. Ariane Burgess. 
Thank you, Deputy First Minister. Thanks to the introduction of free bus travel for under-22s delivered with Greens in government, over 300,000 young people across Scotland, including 20,000 in Highlands and Islands, are now enjoying free low-carbon travel. Here in the capital, the proposed SNP Green Council Coalition agreement included significant measures to increase bus patronage. Is the Deputy First Minister as shocked as I am that rather than embracing progressive politics, Labour have put these positive measures at risk by colluding with the Tories to cobble together an administration? Can the Deputy First Minister outline how the government will work collaboratively to provide quality bus services across Scotland? Deputy First Minister, Presiding officer, uh, as a consequence of the partnership that, agree, that, uh, that, that has been agreed between the Scottish Green Party and the Scottish Government, young people rightly tra uh, travel uh, through, for free uh, under the age of 22 as a consequence of that agreement. And because of that agreement, I think there was an opportunity in other parts of the country to go further in relation to this type of collaboration. And I'm only sorry that in the city of Edinburgh, the Labour Party's collaboration with the Conservative Party has thwarted further ambitious proposals being brought forward. Now, uh, we, know, we know that all of these grubby deals at local level have been approved by Jackie Bailey. It sums it, 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 it frankly, it frankly explains a lot, uh, that particular agreement. But I very much regret that there wasn't the opportunity to take forward some of these proposals and to advance the interests of people in Scotland by the collaboration that we've seen in this Parliament. Question number four, Jim Fairley. Thank you, President Officer. I'd like to ask the Deputy First Minister what the Scottish Government's response is regarding the impact on Scotland to comments by Ian Wright of the Food and Drink Sector Council regarding the UK's preparedness for increasing food prices and shortages. Deputy First Minister. So, so we've seen through Brexit, COVID and now the illegal war in Ukraine how resilient the food sector is despite all the challenges they have faced. Food supply continues to be strong. The Scottish Government, however, takes seriously the food security of Scotland and in response to the war in Ukraine, Scottish Ministers established a short-life food security and supply task force together with industry. The task force is currently considering a range of issues and will recommend actions that can be taken to strengthen food security and supply in Scotland. And I expect the task force to report in due course. The UK Government holds many of the levers to address the ongoing pressures, but we will continue to use all of the powers we have available to support people in Scotland. Jim Fairley. I'd like to thank the Deputy First Minister for that answer. Scotland's food and drink sector has been on a journey marked by numerous successes, not least by providing a constant supply of world-class foods, employing over 115,000 people and a high-value export market. But it's clear to me that this totemic industry is in grave danger from the incompetence and intransigence of the UK Government, as highlighted by Mr Wright. It doesn't just endanger our food industry, it threatens the ability of people being able to source the high quality food that we want them to have. So does the Deputy First Minister agree with me that the only way that we can protect that industry and all our industries is through an independent Scotland? Oh. Deputy First Minister. Well, I, 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 I do agree with Mr Fairley on, on that point. Um, the, the food and drink industry is currently facing numerous significant challenging impacts currently as a result of the UK Government's mishandling of Brexit 
at a time of a pandemic, and now uh, those issues are being uh, added to by the challenges that come from the cost of living crisis and the war in Ukraine. So on all of these issues, whether it's cost of living or whether it's the uh, implications of Brexit, the barriers to trade, the obstacles about free movement of individuals, all of these issues can be addressed by independence, which is why Mr Fairley is absolutely right to put that point to Parliament. Question number five, Sharon Dowie. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the Deputy First Minister what the Scottish Government's position is on whether burning waste is good for the environment. Deputy First Minister. President Officer, when considering the treatment of Scotland's unavoidable and unrecyclable residual waste, there are no options that are good for the environment. That is why we are taking actions to reduce the amount of waste we produce, increase the proportion we recycle and minimise the impact of treating any remaining residual waste. We recently published an independent review of the role of incineration in Scotland's waste hierarchy to ensure that how we treat residual waste is aligned with our net zero ambitions. A key finding of the review was that while incineration can be less climate damaging than landfill, incineration capacity could outstrip supply of residual waste if most of the facilities in the pipeline of developments are built. We will set out our initial response to the review in June. Sharon Dowie. I thank the Deputy First Minister for that answer. Residents of Ochiltree are rightly upset by proposals to construct a new incinerator there. Now a report commissioned by one of the First Minister's own ministers, Lorna Slater, who herself pledged to end new incinerators in her party's manifesto, says there isn't even enough demand for new facilities. The local SNP have been embarrassingly silent on the issue, but local residents, politicians and community groups are united in their opposition to the plans. Can the Deputy First Minister tell me, will the First Minister bring in a moratorium on new incinerators and how does this facility fit into our plans to reach net zero? Deputy First Minister. Uh, there, there, there are two points I would make there. The first is that obviously the, uh, the individual application that Sharon Dowie is referring to is a live planning application, so it would be completely inappropriate for me to comment on that. Indeed, it's a live planning application with East Ayrshire Council which might explain why local politicians are silent on the issue as well, because if they weren't silent, they would be in breach of their code of conduct. Yeah. So yeah. I, think, I think we should all be mindful of the rules under which we're all supposed to operate here. Yeah. Um, the second point is in relation to the, the strategic question of incineration. And in my earlier answer, I indicated that we have sought expert advice on this question. We have received that. We're very grateful to Dr Colin Church for that uh, review. Uh, it has been considered within government and ministers will give a response in June. And the point I made in my original answer about the, the, the risk that if all of the um, developments that are being proposed were consented, we would end up with more capacity than uh, would be uh, justifiable with the level of residual waste is obviously a factor that has to be considered. Uh, in, as part of the exercise in reviewing the whole question of incineration, which ministers will re respond to Parliament uh, about uh, in advance of the summer recess. Question number six, Polly McNeill. To ask the First Minister what the Scottish Government's response is to comments by Citizens Advice Scotland that one in five people are running out of money before PD. Deputy First Minister. Officer, the UK cost of living crisis is impacting all households, with those on the lowest incomes being hardest hit. 
It is shocking and shameful that week after week the UK Government has refused to take the direct and bold action needed to support households in need. And we obviously uh, await the, uh, the statements being made in the House of Commons uh, today. We have repeatedly urged the United Kingdom Government to use the levers they have, including introducing a windfall tax, cutting VAT on en energy bills, increasing the warm home discount and following our lead in uprating benefits. This contrasts to the actions of this Government. We are investing almost £770 million this year through a package of cost of living measures and social security support not available anywhere else in the United Kingdom and investing £12 million to support free advice services. Colleen McNeill. So that means that 20% of people cannot make it till payday and with energy cap set to soar this October to almost £3,000 and exorbitant inflation. Even more, people are facing impossible demands on household budgets and the mental health toll will be huge. So one of the Scottish Government's response was to give a £150 council tax discount to Scottish households. But Chris Burt of the Joseph Rowntree Foundation said recently £150 will barely touch the sides of the gaping hole in many low-income households. He said there was no perfect solution to the Finance Secretary, but this is not a good one. So in addition to what the Chancellor will announce today, and I do agree with John Swinney, something which the Tories have been forced into, but I must ask this Government, what steps will they take to be bolder? What new plans will they have to play their part in ensuring the struggling households can look to this Government for the support that they need? Deputy First Minister. Well, one, of the, one of the measures this Government has taken is that we have doubled the Scottish child payment to £20 per child per week, and we are increasing it to £25 from the end of the year, and will extend it to under-16s too. Now, that is not provided in any other part yep. of the United Kingdom. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I also remind Parliament it was voted against by the Labour Party yep. because they exactly. voted against the budget. Yep. So, much as I respect Polly McNeill, I have to say to the Labour Party, if you're going to come to Parliament and demand we do things, the nice and decent thing would be to vote for them when yeah. we put them to Parliament. And the second thing I'll say is that, yes, we will await what the Chancellor has, has said or is saying. I'm not sure if he's doing it at this precise moment. But rather than complaining about what the UK government isn't or, isn't or is doing, why don't we have the powers yeah. in this Parliament yeah. to take the actions that will remedy the situation? And of course, lastly, presiding officer, it all comes down to the decisions that are also taken by individual public authorities in Scotland. Yesterday, in my own council area in Perth and Kinross, we removed the Conservatives from power and an SNP administration was appointed. And their first act, their first policy, was to uh, apply £700,000 of new money in cost-of-living measures to support my vulnerable constituents. And what was the actions of some Labour authorities around the country? Their first act was to give new jobs to the Tories. That's a disgrace for the Labour Party. That concludes First Minister's questions. There will be a brief pause before we move to members' business.